On this week's Taxi Cab Ride, we're discussing a brief history of U.S. taxes, topics including Civil War and Reconstruction, Arrival of the Income Tax, FDR's Moralistic Taxes, Mass Taxes During World War II, and Modern Taxes. Buckle up and enjoy the ride. Taxi. Where to? To the Tax Museum. Hop in. I gotta be honest. That sounds boring. Who are you people? We're actually tax professionals. I'm Cole Dewberry, and me and my tax team are going to convince you that taxes are more interesting than you think. First, let's start with the Civil War. In 1861, the first federal income tax was introduced to finance the Civil War. Congress passed the Internal Revenue Act, creating the Bureau of Internal Revenue, the predecessor of the IRS. And then during 1863, the Confederacy poorly implemented their own version of an income tax, as wealth was primarily found in property and slaves rather than liquid. Then, during the Reconstruction era of the United States, between 1867 and 1872, Congress consistently reduced the tax rates and increased exemptions yearly, lowering the overall income tax revenue for the country. During 1862, the income tax expired as it did not have substantial support from the American public and primarily the affluent citizens, as they accepted that income and excise taxes are only for emergency war situations. During 1881, the Supreme Court rejected the claim that income tax of 1864 was unconstitutional in Springer versus the United States. Following that, in 1890, McKinley's tariff pushed tariff rates to an all-time high, making the public feel portrayed as taxes as tariffs were generally pointed to collect at times of consumption. During 1894, Congress passed Wilson and Gorham ta- the Wilson Wilson and Gorham Tariff, which established a tax rate of 2% for annual income above 4000 which was slightly lower than McKinley's, betraying the public even more. And finally, in 1895, the Supreme Court declared the 1894 income tax unconstitutional in Pollock v. Farm Loan and Trust Co. The first invalidation of con- congressional tax measure. It ended up ruling that certain classes of property are disqualified from federal income taxation. Real and personal property, state and municipal bonds, these should be pro- apportioned to appropriate taxation at the state level and back to tariffs as income collection measures. All right, Mr. Dewberry, that was pretty cool, but you're not quite pulling me yet. Who's next? Hey, Mr. Taxi Driver, I'm Lauren Hawley, and I'm going to tell you about the 16th Amendment arriving in FDR's moralistic taxes. So in 1909, President Taft orchestrated passage of the 1% corporate income tax to defer public momentum away from enacting the individual income tax. This worked temporarily, but since it was the first corporate tax, not long after, in 1913, they ratified the 16th Amendment to the Constitution, which granted Congress the power to tax personal income. There was finally this political momentum and support due to declining tariff revenues that used to support the government and a political push to shift tax burden to the wealthy. They also established the Bureau of Internal Revenue. The next year in 1914, they released the first tax form, which is the 1040. Um, They didn't collect any money in the first year. They just 
checked the forms for accuracy. Two years later in 1916, the Revenue Act of 1916 adjusted those brackets up so that tax revenue was slightly higher and they were trying to collect revenue for World War I. They also raised the corporate tax rate and introduced a federal estate tax. From 1917 to 1919, taxes gradually increased under President Wilson to collect more war revenue. After this, the Republican lawmakers joined with a series of um, Republican presidents to engineer tax cuts throughout the 1920s prior to the Great Depression starting in 1930. This is whenever states began collecting sales tax and soon after the federal government begins increasing rates and lowering income tax exemptions. Mainly at this point in time, they were looking to collect revenue from excise taxes on certain goods that they deemed sinful. This next period begins FDR's journey into making taxation moralistic. So in 1933, J.P. Morgan admits that he didn't pay income taxes during 1931 or 1932. His taxable income was zero, so it was legal tax avoidance, not illegal tax evasion. But the public is shocked, and this leads to support for tax reform and a debate on the morality of tax. The Revenue Acts in the following years began to implement a bunch of rules that we're familiar with today, such as capital loss, deductibility against capital gains only, brackets slowly increase, and at this point in 1935, there was an individual bracket instituted for 79% of income above $5 million. And according to official estimates sourced by the Tax History Museum, only one taxpayer would be subject to this bracket, um, John D. Rockefeller Jr. In 1935 and 1936, FDR signed off on the Social Security payroll taxes, and then he proposed reform on the corporate tax and introduced an undistributed profits tax, which determines the rate imposed on corporations. This tax was designed to encourage corporations to distribute and spend retained earnings and face lots of opposition from the business public. In 1937, Congress passed the Revenue Act of 1937, which shut down various avoidance techniques and narrowed the availability of others. At this point, they were trying to limit personal holding companies, multiple family trusts, incorporation of country estates, racing stables, yachts, and other hobbies. There are a couple that were still left over that we still know today, such as the exemption for state and local bonds. Well, I sure wouldn't want to be a horse owner under FDR. Does this story get better? It really depends, Mr. Taxi Cab Driver. I'm Maisie Summersell, and I'm about to tell you about how we moved from class tax to mass tax during World War II. In 1940, the Revenue Act of 1940 raised taxes, individual, corporate, gift, and estate, and lowered individual exemptions yet again to fund war efforts. Note that this is when taxes begin to generally trickle to the middle class, not just the upper class, in part because of lower exemptions, but also people were reco recovering from depression and earning more. 
A number of tax returns filed in tax year 1941 almost doubled that of 1940. This trend follows the Revenue Acts of 1941 and 1942. In 1943, Congress did not want to increase taxes in any regard to meet revenue demands, so they wrote the Revenue Bill to reflect this. FDR vetoed the bill, the first in American history to meet that fate. Legislators overrode this veto within a week. Also in 1943, we have the current Tax Payment Act. This enacted paycheck withholding. They tried to enact it during Civil War and during early 20th century, but it had been unpopular and tax collection only applied to wealthy Americans. As the tax collection pool expanded, current collection was becoming necessary. Previously, income tax was paid quarterly on estimates and residual was paid at time of filing. Social Security withholding proved that income tax withholding could work. But there was a serious transition problem. Simply dropping withholding onto the existing system would have required taxpayers to spend at least one year making double payments. If it were adopted in 1943, taxpayers would be expected to pay taxes on their 1942 income when they filed returns in March. Returns were due on March 15th until the filing date was changed to April 15th in 1954. At the same time, however, they would be making current payments on their 1943 income. They ended up canceling 75% of the lower of either 1942 or 1943 tax liability. In 1944, the top bracket rate peaks at 94%, and the top bracket was income exceeding 400000 due in part to World War II. It was an attempt at simplifying the 1040 and Individual Income Tax Act of 1944. Next, we have the Revenue Act of 1945, which which decreased rates across the board as the war ended. This trend continues through 1950. Now we have the start of the Korean War. The Revenue Act of 1950 returned to World War II form. Lowest individual tax bracket was 20% and highest individual bracket was 91%. In 1951, the Excess Profits Act of 1950 becomes the law. The act raised the regular corporate income tax by 2% while also imposing an excess profits tax of 30% on any portion of, of a company's profit determined to be excess. As during World War II, companies were allowed a choice in how they calculated this excess, either by comparing war profits to a three-year average of pre-war profits or by measuring war profits against a predetermined normal rate of return on invested capital. The choice was an important concession to corporate taxpayers. In the early 1950s, the Bureau of Internal Revenue of San Francisco office implicated in helping to shield leading crime figures from prosecution. On to 1952, the Truman administration releases plans for a major overhaul of the BIR, to decentralize and depoliticize, remove every political appointment below commissioner, changing it to the IRS. Hey, now I've heard of the IRS. I pay a lot of money to them. What's next? Hey, Mr. Taxi Driver. My name is Walter Morris, and I'll talk to you more about some of the modern U.S. taxes. We'll start in year 1954. Makes me feel a little old that that's considered modern. But anyways, the Internal Revenue Act of 1954... It came out with new depreciation schedules. It gave a 4% dividend tax credit for individuals. Medical and expenses and child care deductions were added. Retirement income credits were given. 
and there is exclusion for employer-provided health insurance as well as exclusion for college scholarships. Then in 1981, you had the Reagan tax cut, and this was known as the Economic Recovery Tax Act of 1981, and this was huge during the 1980s. Um, This provision aimed at a 23% cut in individual income tax rates over three years. This brought the high marginal tax rates, which were the highest ever, from 70% to 50%. At the time, the inflation rate was nearly 10%. The tax cut was so huge that it increased the national debt and blew up budget deficits. As a result, with Reagan's signature, Congress had to undo the tax cut by increasing tax rates from 1982 through 1987 for economic recovery. Then in 1986, the Tax Reform Act of of 1986 was passed, um, and this year's tax reform focused on improving the tax codes that aimed to raise more money than the previous tax reform. Clearly, there was issues with that. Um, This, the top tax rate for individuals in the year 1987, was lowered from 50% to 33%. Many um, lower-level tax brackets were consolidated, and the upper income level of the bottom rate that is married filing jointly, was increased from $5,720,000 a year to $29,750 a year, so a significant increase. Um, And then it greatly expanded the alternative minimum tax to aim at a different set of deductions that most Americans receive, things like personal exemption, state and local taxes, the standard deduction, private activity, bond interest, and certain expenses like union dues, and even more medical costs for the seriously ill can now trigger the alternative minimum tax. Then IRC 469, very important. This is relating to limitations and deductions, limitations on deductions, excuse me, for passive activity losses and limitations on passive activity credits. It removed many tax shelters, especially for real estate investment. And this was um, very prominent because it contributed to the end of the real estate boom in the early to mid-1980s. And that, in turn, is what led to the, or was one of the big causes of the U.S. savings and loan crisis, um, which we've all clearly heard of. And then in 2001 and 2003, you had the Bush tax cuts. The one in 2001 was known as the Economic Growth and Tax Relief Reconciliation Act. And in 2003, the Jobs and Growth Tax Relief Reconciliation Act. The main features of these tax cuts reduced the top four marginal tax rates and the rates on dividends and capital gains. High-income taxpayers were were the ones that benefited the most from these acts. The top 1% of households received, on average, a tax cut of $570,000 from 2004 to 2012. So clearly for the top 1%, that was a very big tax cut. And then in 2017, you had what we have all heard of as the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed by Trump that is effective through 2025. And it generally lowered rates, scrapped and revised many existing deductions in exchange to maintain tax revenue. And one main goal was to make effective corporate rates less than the European Union's effective tax rate to incentivize U.S. business. It gave a single corporate tax rate of 21%. It removed many individual itemized deductions and credits in exchange for lower rates, individual standard deductions, and suspended personal exemption. Um, which was $4,150, and then it suspended many miscellaneous itemized deductions and scrapped NOL carrybacks. Um, so that is a general overview of some of the modern um, tax um, reform and acts that we've seen. Well, it looks like this taxi cab ride is over. I gotta say, that was more interesting than I thought it would be. You guys got an extra ticket to the museum? Of, of course. As long as you promise to turn off that taxi meter. That puppy is off. I don't want to go up to the next tax bracket. 